On this episode of The Playbook, I have Tiffany Bova, Chief Growth Evangelist at Salesforce, the author of Growth IQ, and of course, the podcaster of What's Next. And we're going to talk about how, if the sequencing was different, Blockbuster would still be around today, and who knows what Netflix is. Join me for all of this and more on The Playbook. This is Entrepreneur's The Playbook each week I bring you some of the greatest athletes, celebrities, and entrepreneurs to talk about their personal and professional playbook to success and what made them champions on the field and in the boardroom. I'm your host, David Meltzer. I have the chief growth evangelist at Salesforce. She's also, also an author of Growth IQ and, of course, has a top podcast, What's Next? Tiffany Bova, welcome to the playbook. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, well, it's just so exciting because I think we really can get down and dirty on your playbook to success. And the reason I say that is that this idea of growth IQ really intrigues me uh, in the respect that I've worked on the transition from normal IQ and the old fashioned IQ test that we used to do back in the 80s and 90s, and then moving to the emotional intelligence, the uh, growth IQ uh, is along with adaptable IQ, I think is the most pertinent of all intellectual quotients that we could think about, because like you talk about, it will make or break your business, but I also think it'll make or break your personal life today because of growth, rethinking everything from politics to our educational systems. It's far more than just business. How did you kind of stumble upon or evolve upon the idea of a growth IQ uh, from these other more traditional types of quotients? So a great question. You know, I, I think where it landed was I was describing why I thought the book was going to be a bit different. And I would describe it like this. Growth is a thinking game. How do you outthink your competition? And we all kind of looked at each other and we're like, Kind of like growth IQ. And then, you know, that's how it happened. <laughs> so it was really about outthinking your competition. Um, and this particular book, you know, you've got personal growth, obviously, as you mentioned, and you've got business growth, but you have to be willing to disrupt yourself if you're going to look to disrupt your company um, and or you have to look to grow yourself in order to grow your company, especially for entrepreneurs, because sometimes they hit that Peter principle, right? The level of their incompetency that they may not know how to do something. Um, and so you have to be this continuous lifelong learner or you have to be smart enough to hire and bring people in who can help you accomplish the things that you want to accomplish. So that was sort of the foundation of uh, Growth IQ. And Tiffany, was it challenging for you? You know, I've been working with Salesforce for decades uh, and really understand the culture uh, which I love, uh, you know, both Mark Benioff and I wrote books that have identical titles, Compassionate Capitalism, uh, Unity and Unification and Bridging have always been at the forefront of your company, but yet growth itself separates us. Uh, and we see that as well with the expansive growth, the exponential growth, especially uh, the changes that have occurred during COVID um, that separate us. What are some of the challenges that you have can uh, binding or reconciling the growth with the culture that is just so amazing at Salesforce, the unifying bridging culture of Salesforce when you're kind of inspiring growth, which also contributes to separation. 
So there's a few things, you know, um, I spent a decade prior to joining Salesforce at a company called Gartner, which is the world's largest IT advisory and consulting firm, an analyst firm in the world. Um, and I was a research fellow there covering sort of sales transformation and growth. And prior to that, I was an individual contributing sales rep and then executive uh, managing sales, marketing and service for both startups and Fortune 500 companies. So I had this unique blend of kind of practitioner as well as academic. And when I was looking to make my next move, sort of went in my mind's eye and said, okay, you know, I have attended a ton of, you know, trade shows uh, and events over the years, you know, over both my selling and my uh, advising years. I don't know, probably a thousand, who knows how many, too many. Um, and Dreamforce, which is Salesforce's largest customer event, which we're about to have and reimagined uh, in a couple of months here, it's at the end of September. It was the only event that I left feeling like I wanted to be a better human being. It was not about the technology, right? It was like, business is the greatest platform for change, right? Purpose over profit, all the things you just mentioned on that compassionate capitalism, a lot around the business roundtable, the SDGs. And I said, that's where I want to go. At this point in my career, I want to have a balance of finding a way to give back and obviously to add, to add and to continue to add value. The reason I said that is because that's why I joined the company, right? It was really around this culture and the, and the power that 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 had. And I think the last 16 months really showed that in its purest form because we behaved very much like a startup with 57,000 employees kind of, you know, March 10th when it started to get really uh, challenging. And then, you know, not a week later, completely shut down. We were only six weeks into our year of 2020, 2021, our fiscal year 2021. And everything we had planned all of a sudden was like, well, hold on a second. Like, this may not be what we need to focus on. So Mark Benioff, as you mentioned, our CEO gave us a challenge to have 1 million conversations with customers, not 1 million sales calls, not 1 million demos. Um, obviously, there was a lot of work behind making that happen. Like, how do you forgive some quota? How do you set up the programs? What solutions and technologies do you use? So obviously, there was a lot of work behind it. It's not like all of a sudden everyone started dialing. But then we had all those conversations. We captured all that information. It actually helped us reorganize some of our product groups. We opened up 4,000 new recs and we launched five new products last year. We uh, made acquisitions, uh, you know, Slack that just sort of closed uh, yesterday, depending on when you're listening to this. Uh, and so, you know, ultimately you saw us behave very much like a startup. And what ended up happening after that was we started surveying the employees more and more to understand kind of what was happening. Lo and behold, we were seeing burnout. So now we've reached out to customers to understand what they needed. We've reached out to employees and we're feeling and hearing that people are burning out. And we pivoted what we manage our business against called our V2 mom, which is visions, values, methods, metrics, and obstacles. And they started mark and roll to everybody in the company. We rewrote those. So we had a COVID V2 mom and we had a regular business V2 mom and the things we were gonna do. And then it was like, no meetings Thursdays, you know, one Friday a month, uh, take off. Now the half hour meeting invites in Google were going to be 20 or 25 minutes and 45 or 50 minutes instead of an hour. The reason I'm giving you this very long answer to this is we were living our values and our culture right through a pandemic and last quarter was our best quarter ever. So in the middle of all that, in the middle of the burnout, in the middle of the uncertainty in the market for our customers, 
we rallied around not only our people, but our broader shareholder community, which has always been what we stand for. And it paid off for us. And so doing well by doing good is absolutely possible. So, you know, if you're an entrepreneur and you're listening to this, it's like, what is your culture? Do you live those values? And do you do it in every decision that you make? And when things happen like this, how you treat your employees and your customers and your community during times like this um, has long-term implications to, into what your customers may think of you uh, today and in the future. And so Tiffany, as someone who's branded herself, you know, an expert in growth with your book and your podcast and all the things that you've done as an analyst as well, you know, a lot of people probably come to you for advice. And even in my consultative uh, career and as a business coach and things, the classic question of someone who's an expert in growth is, what's the one thing I can do uh, that will create growth? What's the one thing I can do to, to grow more? Uh, how do you answer that most common question uh, as a consultant and an expert in growth? Yeah, so that is the one question that prompted me to write the book. So great question. Uh, my very fast answer is the one thing about growth is it's never one thing. And I know that's kind of a cop out. And many would say, that's exactly what a consultant would say. You know, <laughs> like, I'm going to tell you all the things that it is, and it's going to take me a year to do it. But really, literally, I mean, it isn't one thing. And so when I used to get asked that from both small and the largest selling organizations in the world, I would hear these three levers. We're having trouble in this quarter. What can we do in quarter to turn things around? Hire more salespeople, which if you've ever done that, you know salespeople do not get up and running that quickly unless you have a highly commoditized product and they're coming from a competitor and they just know it and can learn it very quickly. But it, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's going to take either a few weeks or a few months for them to start to have impact in the business. But hire more salespeople, spend more marketing dollars. So if I'm spending more marketing dollars, I'm going to push more into the pipeline and into the funnel. And if you're a small startup, you're like, I don't have more marketing dollars to spend. But if you have any size, you know, that might be one thing you do. And the third one is cut costs, which that's the worst choice that you could do. And if right now you're in a growth mode, um, this is the time you should be doubling down. But I used to only hear those three. And I said, it cannot possibly be just those three because there's so many other ways that you can do it. And that, of course, as I said, prompted me to start to do some research. So I uncovered 10 paths to growth. And to be really clear, these 10 paths, well, nine of them anyway, are not anything new. There are things that have been around from the management and strategy world for some, in some cases, 50 years. You know, sell more to your existing customers sell new things to your existing customers, sell your existing things to new customers, sell new things to new customers, right? That sort of matrix, the Ansoft matrix it's called. So what I did was I took these proven strategies and I modernized them based on the fact that now we have cloud, big data, social analytics, machine learning, VR, AR, right? Everybody has more power in the palm of their hand than we had compute power 15 years ago. So that needed some modernization in some of those strategies. And when I was doing that research, I realized that companies were using more than one growth path. It was never just one. So like one of them is customer experience. Well, you always want to do that, right? One of them is optimize the way you sell. Well, you probably always want to do that. And then there was one that's sell more to your existing base of customers. Well, you probably always want to do that. So those three, let's just say, were always constant. Then you might say, I want to launch a new product where that's a fourth path, or I want to accelerate into a new geography. That's another path. And so I figured out that it was always the combination of multiple initiatives to get that leverage that you want from a growth perspective. 
but I will say the but, but the biggest aha for me was the sequence in which you do things actually has the greatest impact on your ability to be successful. So when you launch something, um, in what order you do things. So I always use Netflix as an example. So go back in time when Blockbuster was still around and Netflix was just starting. If Netflix had started in streaming at that time, would they have been successful? What do you think? Not a chance. And the reason why? The bandwidth uh, and right. the user numbers are low. Right. So Blockbuster had actually tried streaming like a decade before um, with a partnership with another company, Enron actually, ironically, and it, it didn't work. So it was because the context of the market was such that we had DVD players and VHSs in our house. We did not have high-speed internet everywhere across the U.S. So if they just started there, they would not have been able to build a beachhead. So they separated themselves and said, we're going to eliminate the problems that a customer has, you know, late fees, et cetera. We're going to start with mailing it to eliminate uh, that because the job to be done was entertain my family at home, not go to a movie theater. And so... The job remains the same. How that is actually delivered from a solution perspective is what changed. Once the US started to get you know, bandwidth, they started to introduce um, uh, the streaming service. Now, you might find it interesting. At the time I published the book, now it's been three years, um, there was about three quarters of a million people in the US who still got mail order DVDs and VHSs. Very, very profitable for them and funded a lot of the investments they've made. That's what I mean by sequence. So another example I had in the book was McDonald's. They launched all day breakfast, which their customers had wanted for a very long time. They finally decided to listen and did it. If they turned it on Monday morning, they would have failed. Why? I did not know you cannot cook eggs and hamburger patties at the same temperature. You needed two grills. So they had to get 3000 franchisees to re, um, uh, you know, uh, organize their kitchens and remodel their kitchens, put in two grills so that they could have breakfast all day. That's another example of sequence. So the growth paths are interesting, right? And the fact that you have to do multiple is also interesting, but what order you do them in, that's where the rubber meets the road for me. I wish I would have met you in 99. I was CEO of the world's first smartphone for Microsoft. It was a Windows C device, cleverly called the PC-E phone, a combination of a PC and a phone. Uh, but people told me there's no way somebody uh, would spend that much or have such a big phone in 1999. That was true. But in 2019, it, it seems to be uh, even more true that it is sequencing, uh, not ideas or innovation. 2020, though, uh, was definitely a year of reflection. Uh, I see 2021 as a year of decisions, uh, which falls right in line with your expertise and situational knowledge. But you speak a lot about the great reset. You know, we have control of our mindset, our heart set, and of course, the conscious continuum or the pragmatic experiences that we can execute on. But I love uh, that topic of a great reset because it really entails more than just a shift in the mindset. Uh, you talk about experiences and thinking as Dave McCourt wrote in, in his book, Rethink. I see a lot of parallels. For you, what is this great reset and what are some of the things that we can do uh, to take advantage of it? Well, there's a saying I love and it goes kind of something like this, right? In the beginner's mind, there are lots of opportunities. In the expert's mind, there are few. And so the great reset for me was to get many uh, of us who have been very successful in business, right? We've done it this way. It's always worked to be open and willing to have some sense and some part of our mind 
to be much more beginners oriented, right? To learn, unlearn, relearn kind of scenario. So just because you did it, you know, two years ago and it worked, it kind of doesn't matter today almost because everything is so different. Supply chain's different. The buyer's expectations are different. You know, everyone is, uh, you know, for the most part, working from anywhere, success from anywhere. You've got parts of the world that are locked back down again, Sydney and Melbourne, as an example. You know, you've got a new sort of strain making its way around the globe. And so we're going to go in and out of this for a little bit longer. And so how do you actually give yourself permission in a day-to-day -day way where you can think and reflect and become curious about things you could potentially do differently? Maybe strike a partnership you never would have thought you would have done before with a competitor or with you know, somebody to expand your capabilities. Outsource something so that you can get much more focused on the things you're doing. Reorganize your teams or reskill and redeploy people so that they're happier with what they do every day. Whatever it might be, you know, those 1% pivots, a half a percent pivot, a 0.01% pivot every single day over the course of the year will have huge implications. So, you know, for me, it was the great reset because we could have a chance forced upon us globally to push the button and say, what can we do better? And what's been so wonderful for me to watch over this time is all the things from a social standpoint and a human standpoint, we've really tried to um, do better on and fix in some ways. It's not perfect. It probably never will be perfect, but you know, it's kind of like we can't unlearn or unsee or unhear what we have over the last 16 months. So how do we make things like the access to high-speed internet that we were just talking about on that Netflix example available to everybody? Because if you're going to work from anywhere and educate from anywhere and do healthcare from anywhere and see your friends and family and collaborate at work from anywhere and you don't have high-speed internet or you don't have access to devices, you're totally left out of this conversation. So there are things that I think we still have the opportunity to fix. And so I don't like the term new normal um, or getting back to normal because I think what we left behind should be left behind. And we need to aspire to make the future much better for ourselves and for generations to come. And to that point, you know, Salesforce itself has been known to simplify the interactions internally between a Salesforce originally uh, and of course the rest of the company and then outer facing simplify the interaction between salespeople and of course the customers. Um, but you also extend that a little bit farther uh, to understand how we can simplify, like my friend Bradley Tusk, uh, one of the founders of Uber, you know, he wants to simplify the interactions. A critical life issue for us is voting. Uh, and with governmental agencies, you share that technology can simplify these interactions between government and citizens. What are some of the things that you feel have the biggest uh, bottlenecks today that technology can clear as Bradley suggests voting is obvious, but is there another area that you focus in on or would love to implement the technology to clear that uh, interference that's created today? I think education is a huge opportunity. Um, access to education, you know, some people don't have transportation or some people don't have the economic uh, ability to do it. I mean, look at how many people leave college in riddled with debt uh, and also the way in which we teach. I mean, I can only talk about myself, but I am a visual listen learner, not a read learner. So school was terrible for me, right? Because I'd have to read, memorize and take a test. Forget it. I was a terrible student. So much so that like, you know, I don't have my MBA because I knew that that would probably be a bad idea uh, because I don't think I would have done as well as go out and learn it in, in sort of the real world. And, you know, 
yes, I don't have it. Are there things maybe I didn't learn that I should have learned that were harder for me to learn because I didn't have my MBA? Maybe. So we have an opportunity to reimagine what that education landscape looks like. You have people who don't have access, don't have financial means, and also learn in different ways. So I'm a visual listen learner, not a read learner. And so, you know, allowing people to learn in the medium they want, you know, I had to go to class, sit, listen to a professor. I was in college 84 to 88. Um, and I had a, actually had a laptop. I had a dual disk drive, NEC, floppy disk drive, word perfect laptop. So, you know, we're going to go way back. Um, and there was no ability, right, for me to watch the professor if I was sick at home or if I was traveling or if I just didn't want to go to class. There was no way for me to reconsume it. I had to be there and I had to do it that way, regardless of how I learned and how I would be successful. So I think education, um, like voting, but I think education is one that if we can create a environment where it is lifelong learning, right, you don't just, when you're done with college, you stop learning, that there's this continuing education. I went to Arizona State University and um, it's actually uh, uh, one of the um, leading, if not the leading, I think it's number one, most innovative colleges um, across the country, more so than the top tier, you know, the Harvards and the MITs and the Harvey Muds of the world. Um, literally that, that uh, uh, ASU is one of them. And the president is all about this lifelong learning. So when you retire, do you wanna keep taking classes? When you're in the middle of your career, do you wanna keep taking classes? When you leave as a graduate from ASU, do you want to keep taking classes? Um, and so that, that I think is a, is a huge place where technology can um, add access, uh, add uh, more opportunity, um, expand people's horizons and curiosity levels as well, keep them interested in what they're doing for a living and maybe even giving them career paths to, to change uh, directions you know, at some point in their working lives. So, you know, that's where I think we've got a huge opportunity. It's interesting. I think I was the last person to convert from WordPerfect 5.1. Uh, I was completely resistant. I, lo I love that word processing system. And I will tell you, I feel the same way about education. It was as much as I'm a Branson and Bezos fan as an entrepreneur, I would have much rather seen those billions of dollars be spent on education, technology, and access uh, instead of trying to just fly 10 minutes out of the atmosphere and back. Yeah, but you know, and I've, obviously we've heard a lot about that in the last couple of weeks. But the one thing I'd say there is it showed massive global collaboration, you know, country to country collaboration. How can we use technology to do something unimaginable a generation ago to make space travel commercial? It's like, you know, the first cell phones were very expensive. And now they're not right? Bandwidth was, everything was sort of always very expensive. So, you know, will it be $28 million every time? Then it's going to be a very small pool of people who go. But what did we learn out of that? What did we learn about how, how can we apply maybe that process, the scrum process, the lean process, whatever process they use to make, what can we learn from that to apply elsewhere? If you're just talking about the sheer fact they went to space and could they have spent that money differently, we can argue about that all day long. And I don't necessarily disagree with you, but what can we learn from it that, that we then can apply um, to some of these areas uh, that, that really need our help? I will tell you that all your answers were amazing, but I love the last answer because it really shows people the perspective of how you think. 
And I think that's the most valuable playbook lesson that I'm taking away from the episode is that we can look at things so differently. I always say change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And there's no wonder uh, how you share different perspectives of you know what is a, a mass opinion or judgment or condition placed upon two billionaires for flying outer space, how simple it is to do, but yet the depth of which if we look at things in a little different way can illustrate this global collaboration that's gonna be necessary for our survival. Uh, you know, As the pandemic has showed us for the first time on earth, we have to question our own existence as a whole, uh, which also bridges us, which is that common culture of Salesforce as well. Um, just an extraordinary uh, lessons and playbook. Tiffany, I appreciate you so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Playbook as much as me. On a personal note, I just wanted to thank everyone for making The Playbook such a success. Don't forget to continue it by sharing, subscribing, and listening to your favorite episodes. This is Dave Meltzer with The Playbook.